Hello all and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown, your weekly look at the IT News of the Week. I'm your host, Rich Straffolino. I'm an editor at Gestalt IT. Joining me from across this great land of ours is the one, the only, the networking nerd himself, Tom Hollingsworth. Tom, thanks for being here. No problem, Rich. Glad to be uh, enjoying this fine day of ridiculous news stories because it seems like everything landed on this week to <laughs> happen. Yes, all the things. In fact, one of the big things that's coming up this week is a really cool thing we're doing with Tech Field Day. It's Tech Field Day presents Dell Technologies Power Up the Portfolio. Um, we're going to be having some cool announcements there, so check it out at techfieldday.com. We're going to be streaming that tomorrow and Friday. Um, they're going to have some interesting high-end and uh, software-defined storage offerings uh, kind of uh, announced and detailed at that event. And uh, we talked about their PowerScale Unified Mid-Range Storage uh, that they announced a couple weeks ago. They're going to be good doing a deep dive on that. So if you are into the storage and want to know what's up with Dell, we have a story about Dell in our rundown, so we will talk about them a little bit more later. But check out Tech Field Day uh, Presents Dell Technologies, power up the portfolio, techfieldday.com, uh, if you are so inclined. Tom, let's, though, talk about the news. Uh, first thing that I wanted to cover is an announcement by Parallels, the uh, Windows virtualization uh, consumer kind of facing uh, uh, company. But they announced that they're working with Google to bring full Windows application support to Chrome OS enterprise devices. Parallels promised that this autumn full-featured Windows apps, including Microsoft Office, will run seamlessly on Chromebook, Chromebook enterprise devices. We've seen a number of companies, uh, uh, you know, kind of promise that Google themselves is, you know, kind of said, hey, we're going to bring Android apps to, or we are bringing Android apps to Chrome OS. They exist on the platform currently. We've seen companies like Droplet Computing that say, hey, we can, you know, wrap all this up and uh, we're not going to call it a container, but it's a container and you can run it anywhere and it's going to be great. Parallels, though, big name uh, in it. Uh, you know, what, what's, the, what's the feel for if this could be a big deal for Chrome? Well, I think this is bad news for Chrome because it uh, it slays that argument. Oh, we can just completely replace your Windows. Um, <laughs> if Parallels has to come in and say, well, not really, but we can help you with that. Uh, that's actually a good thing. And given the state of what happened after Monday's announcement with uh, basically the sunsetting of boot camp and more reliance on para-virtualization pro products like Parallels, I think this is actually good for them because they get more practice diversifying across a larger hardware base and basically t tightening up their interfaces and their software stack. Yeah, I didn't think about that this kind of, uh, uh, you know, burst the bubble of Chrome OS. Just do everything in a browser. It's fine. Uh, it'll work. I also think Microsoft Office is the is one of the weirder examples. Like, Office actually online is, I feel like, it, if you're using it, if you're like an Excel power user, yes, Excel desktop is way better. But for like the 90% of functions that you're going to use Office for, Office Online is kind of fine. So that to me is like a weird, I know it's the classic use case, but it just seems a little weird to me. Um, we'll see. It's interesting, that, again, that it is an enterprise-only play, uh, to your point, kind of, uh, again, um, hey, they know where the money is, turns out. Um, and uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll be seeing there. Obviously, there are a lot of... Um, you know, Windows-specific enterprise apps that need to, you know, that, that can't just be ported over to Android or or run um, in any other way other than on Windows. So, you know, that makes a lot of sense, too. But, yeah, we will see uh, about that. Uh, next up here, Zoom uh, made some, uh, some waves recently when they had said that uh, they were bringing end-to-end -end encryption to only their paid users. Well, now they've launched an option for AES-256 GCM transport end-to-end -end encryption on its beta version in July 
to all users, or they will be bringing it. Previously, Zoom said, like I said, they would only do end-to-end for paid users. There's going to be a toggle switch available for call admins to turn the feature on or off. Uh, obviously, if you're joining by phone, they can't encrypt that because you're sending it over a phone line, so you can't. Uh, it has to be off if you're going to have phone users join. Free users who want the feature will have to write additional verification, such as a phone number uh, by text message, just to kind of verify that. And they say that's to stop the mass creation of accounts. Uh, Zoom kind of backing away from their hard stance and and not uh, drawing an encryption an encrypted line of the sand here, Tom. Well, they are they're really damned if they do and damned if they don't. If they don't offer encryption, which by all accounts they had really good reasoning for it, uh, no encryption on free accounts means that you can uh, you can eavesdrop on those calls, which evidently are being used for highly illegal activities like human trafficking. So big problem there, but everyone thinks we have to encrypt all the things all the time, no matter what, to keep the big bad evildoers out of our business communications. Okay, that's great. So I think Zoom actually did the best thing they could do. You want encryption? Awesome. We need to know who you are. You have to sign up and verify your identity with some kind of a cell phone number or some other kind of uh, verification process. That way, if we suspect you're doing something stupid that you're not supposed to be doing, we can rat you out to the cops, which realistically speaking, if you're a security professional, you should be happy about this because you know what the alternative is? Figuring out a way to break AES-256. And given the state of the world right now, I don't necessarily know that I want people doing that. Well, and the other the other uh, point here is, yeah, to, to your point, I mean, it certainly is to appease, not to appease, um, to, to kind of reconcile the, uh, the problem uh, of, you know, how do we... Uh, you know, this is a, a fr- on the free tier, you know, people can use this for whatever, obviously illegal things at some point are going to be done on it. Um, I do think it's interesting. Yeah, we're going to make you tag this with some metadata because that's basically what they're doing of we need your name. We need to know, you know, we're, we can say, you know, what two points you're calling between. We're not going to know the the content of it if you choose to use that choose encryption beta. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, we have those additional data points so that if we do need to report it to law enforcement, you know, that is out there as well. And, it, you know, it, it is interesting. I, I feel like a lot of this just would have been solved if they had said from day one that if they had actually used end-to-end encryption as opposed to saying they did and not actually offering and now having to, like, hack it on uh, afterwards. And also, there's no guarantee that this beta will actually go forward and be available to free users after a certain test period when they kind of figure out all their encryption stuff, too. That's the other thing. All right, next up here, uh, we had some uh, some big old DDoS news. Amazon announced its AWS Shield service mitigated a DDoS attack that generated 2.3 terabits per second of traffic in mid-February, making the largest attack they've seen. The previous record was 1.7 terabit uh, per second attack in March 2018. Um, so, yeah, a substantial jump in that number. Amazon didn't disclose the target, but said it was carried out using compromised connectionless lightweight directory access protocol web servers, which are usually used to connect, search, and modify internet shared domains. It's interesting, you know, in the in the article, we'll have a, we have a link to this in our show notes um, from ZDNet. They actually reported that in terms of the volume of DDoS attacks is increasing, but the actual, like these giant ones are actually fairly rare and becoming rarer. So it was notable to see this giant uh, spike in that. Tom, can you, I, I guess, shocking to see that volume of traffic out there? Or is that just, hey, there are botnets that exist and uh, botnet's going to botnet? Well, the the biggest problem is that 
the, like you said, the DDoS attacks are actually more common than you might think, but the scale is what matters. Mm -hmm. So with, with things like Amazon Shield or Cloudflare, we can pretty much swat those down fairly easily. In fact, a couple of years ago at, at Networking Field Day, uh, we talked to Nokia and they were talking about using some of their deep field analytics technology to basically just drop the packets before they even got to their destination. Um, the problem is, um, think of this like, uh, oh, uh, you, it's a resource problem. So I have all of these devices that have been compromised, LDAP servers in this case. And I want to use a few of them to, I don't know, botnet one of my Fortnite opponents. Okay, well, I basically burned those resources to do that because as soon as they are detected being a part of a DDoS attack, they're going to get scrubbed. They're going to get cleaned. Maybe I can reinfect them later, but who knows? Mm. So I can burn a few minor resources. Like I can uh, think of it like the e the evil overlords uh, thing. I can send out my foot soldiers to just get obliterated by the hero. But when I really want to try to take the hero down, I have to commit. I have to send my dragon. I have to send my secret weapons. That's what they're doing. Burning a 2.6 terabit DDoS attack tells me that they really wanted something knocked offline. And the fact that Amazon's not telling us what it was means that they have a really good idea what it might have been, and they're really not wanting to say anything. Also, just impressive to see that they were able to mitigate. You know, I don't know if, if mitigate means there was a disruption in service but didn't go down completely or something like that, but uh, impressive, certainly, uh, nonetheless. Uh, next up here, uh, interesting news from Intel. They launched their second generation Optane memory dims. This is their, uh, you know, that non-volatile uh, memory that they've had out in the market for years. The dims were kind of always the thing that everyone thought Optane was going to be, and they took them a while to get to the market, but now they're iterating it in the second generation. For this, they're keeping the capacities the same at 128, 256, and 512 gigabytes of Optane memory you know, per memory socket. So an impressive number. Uh, they're also, uh, but really this is all about increasing performance. Compared to Gen 1, the read speeds have increased 20% to 8.1 gigabits per second, while writes have increased 37% to 3.15 gigabytes per second. Write endurance also increased 35%. We're talking, you know, petabits of, of writes on here for that endurance, although a factor nonetheless. These DIMMs are designed for third generation uh, Xeon four socket processing system. So a pretty specific target to hit there. You're not going to be installing this uh, on your, your home PC anytime soon. Tom, given the workloads that Optane DIMMs are meant for, things like in-memory databases, uh, dense virtualization, analytics, high-performance computing, is better performance needed or would capacity better serve something? I'm thinking specifically of you know massive databases that need all the memory they can get. It, it, this is the age-old resource allocation problem. Do I make it faster or do I make it bigger? Because they are on two different axes right now and you can't do both. Um, not at the cost that you want to do. Yes, if if cost was not a factor, I would have the biggest memory allocation <laughs> that I could for the biggest databases that I could. But uh, I'm, I'm going to stand on a tiny little soapbox here. Maybe the problem isn't that we need to make our memory more available to the application developers. Maybe it's that we need to send the application developers back to the Nintendo Entertainment System School of Writing Software, where you have a limited amount of resources and you better make everything fit, because if you don't, you don't get any more. Yeah, that, uh, I mean... Opt I think Optane exists uh, to make the best of the world that we live in, Tom, not the world uh, that we <laughs> – Optane is not an idealist. It's a realist. Um, I, I do think it's super interesting, you know, the idea of – uh, the idea of Optane was always, I think, more alluring than what ended up being released by Intel, certainly within certain workloads. Again, if you if you have a, a, 
a data warehouse and you need to just put as much as you can uh, into memory to like optimize that performance, Optane is great because you can get terabytes of memory per socket, which is kind of unthinkable. Yeah, it's not quite as fast as DRAM, but you know, you get all sorts of other benefits as well. Um, you know, if, if you can, this isn't, this is impressive performance gains, especially on those writes. I think is a, is a really nice performance game, seeing almost 40% there. Um, you're still not kind of touching DRAM at that point. You're probably, ne Optane's probably never going to be able to, to kind of hit that performance level, but um, certainly needed. I, I think the capacity is ultimately where they're going to make their best plays, where they're already making their best play is offering that insane capacity that's kind of impossible on the DRAM side. So we will see if uh, what Gen 3 looks like, but a, a certainly a nice iteration from Intel nonetheless. Mm -hmm. Speaking of uh, uh, new releases, NVIDIA launched the A100, an Ampere generation GPU with a 250-watt TDP and support for PCIe 4.0. Inside is 40 gigabytes on a GPU card, of uh, high bandwidth memory and is optimized for machine learning training and inferencing, no surprise there. They're kind of pitching this as a follow-up to their Volta cards, which have kind of, uh, you know, kind of set the stage for performance when it comes to the machine learning workloads. They're claiming to have a 20% performance increase versus those Volta cards on FP32 training and inferencing workloads with a 2.5% or a 2.5 times performance increase on higher precision HPC workloads. So that's kind of the thing is, you can make the numbers look really good. Lower precision, you tend to get much better performance because you don't, again, you don't need that precision. You can kind of play a little bit faster and looser. Still impressive uh, for those, I think those are FP64 um, workloads. Interestingly, only AMD's Epic platform currently supports PCIe 4.0 and is recommended to get full performance on the card. Uh, NVIDIA doing more advanced machine learning stuff I don't think is a headline, uh, but, uh, you know, interesting that, um, you know, PCIe being very aggressive with that, given that Epic is not common necessarily yet in the enterprise um, and kind of hitching that performance wagon to that platform a little bit. Yeah. In case you're curious, this card still won't be able to run Crisis in full detail. <laughs> um, but th this reminds me of that uh, animated GIF from the movie Airplane where the lady's having a freak out in her seat and like everybody walks up and shakes her and a couple of people slap her and you look down and there's a line of people like one of them's banging a pipe and is <laughs> and go look it up. If you've never seen Airplane, I sincerely wonder how you exist in reality. But this is basically the person in the seat is Intel. And now we have Apple, Nvidia and everybody AMD, everybody else just kind of lining up to be like, guess what? We're going to take our, we're going to take the piss out of you right now. Because here's what NVIDIA basically did. They took a very large infinity gauntlet and they threw it down on the table. And they said, you can't give us the processing power that we want, which is why we've been building these ridiculous cards that are workload specific. You can't support PCI 4.0 because Lord knows why not. So if you want to run this thing as fast as humanly possible and get the most performance you can out of it, you need to go talk to our friends over here at AMD. Um, they will be get you the right chip and we'll get you the right card. And you can say sayonara to Intel and do whatever you want. This is why, so uh, our latest checksum video that came out uh, this week was all about Intel's kind of x86 future. And you know, I guess spoiler for a five minute video, but the takeaway I had was, you know, Intel, I don't think is going to get to the point where they were in the mid 2000s where they could just be like, we're the fastest chip ever. 
Uh, we don't care about price necessarily. Uh, ha ha ha. We can, we can just out innovate you on silicon and be good with that. Their future right now, and this kind of goes back to the last story we talked about with Optane, is a platform play, right? So you can buy a you know you can buy a server that with Optane that's only going to work with that. I don't see anybody talking about 3D crosspoint coming to any AMD systems anytime soon. So if you need those you know a, a super big allocation of memory for again specific workloads, but important ones nonetheless. Um, you have to go with Intel. They're integrating, um, you know, that uh, that on silicon malware protection that we talked about last week. They bought Rivet Networks to kind of double down on their wireless kind of aggregation and like kind of that smart NIC technology. Again, is it anything unique when you look at the broader ecosystem out there? No, but if you can go to one provider, even if they're not necessarily providing the best performance, and you can kind of get that well-rounded package, I think that's what Intel is banking on, mostly because they don't have a choice. But at least it's a strategy that I see from them kind of going forward. Next up here, speaking of strategy, uh, Microsoft bolstered their IoT security portfolio in a, an emerging uh, uh, market for them, especially with their cloud services, with the acquisition of the Israeli security startup CyberX. Not to be confused with SecureX, which we talked about again last week. I think it is very confusing. Stop using X. The company uses AI and behavioral analytics to monitor network activity for IoT devices in largely unmanned industry, things like telecom, oil, and gas, where you have all this equipment that isn't that doesn't have people buy it all the time. The assets will be integrated into Microsoft's existing Azure IoT security stack, uh, and Azure IoT is quickly becoming a very convincing platform play for Microsoft. You know, kind of going back to that of hey, you need to do uh, uh, scalable IoT, you need it to be secure, you need to get analytics out of that. Come to Azure IoT. Uh, acquiring or CyberX, I did it just now, almost said SecureX, getting that like kind of smart analytics on there, is this just the cherry on top here, Tom, or does this change the game for uh, what uh, Microsoft can offer? Microsoft now has the ability to look at everybody and go, guess what? We've integrated security into your workload. You don't have to worry <laughs> about it anymore. We've taken care of this. This is essentially the Windows Defender for cloud. Um, and if you don't know what Windows Defender is, it's probably been running on your Windows 10 PC and you don't even know it. Um, this is a good deal for people that are trying to increase security postures. Mm -hmm. um, Microsoft just said, you know what? We're going to do an end run around everybody else. We're going to integrate it. We're going to buy this company and it's a done deal. Um, you don't have to think about it anymore. That's the news. In other Microsoft news, uh, they uh, announced they're rolling out new consumer-focused Teams features in Preview Worldwide. They kind of announced this back in March, but we're actually starting to see the rollout of it now. Uh, this isn't consumer-facing Microsoft Teams app. Rather, it's the integration of consumer-focused capabilities into existing enterprise Teams. Mobile apps effectively lets you plug in your personal email address. You can kind of toggle between those two, keep them separate, still operate within that same app. They're offering things like chat and messaging, uh, uh, shared lists and calendars, office collaboration within that app. Uh, location sharing and password management. Tom, I get right now that it might the, the need for this. It, this might be something that was developed out of hey, everyone's working from home. Let's just make things a little little easier for them. But does this strike you as weird to like kind of force a no work life balance into the same app like this? Doesn't that just I don't know. It seems very weird given that that's been such a focus, especially you know maintaining your mental health while you're sheltering in place. Weird move by Microsoft. Very weird. Remember when they first came out with the the Humvee, the consumer Humvee, which was basically we're going to put an air conditioner in a military Humvee. Um, it still has the same horrible gas mileage. It still has the same uncomfortable seats. Um, it can survive an RPG round <laughs> if you happen to get into an RPG battle in the Walmart parking lot. But then they realized that nobody actually wants to drive a military vehicle. 
or like other than anybody other than Arnold Schwarzenegger. So that's when they came up with the H2. Um, this kind of is to me the H2. Um, Plastic fantastic. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it has all the trappings of being the thing that you've used, but it isn't. It's it's actually under the hood. It's something completely different. I, I don't I don't get this. I mean, realistically speaking, I think I can count on this hand the number of people who use Teams for communications and still have this many fingers left. <laughs> I and 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 this is the thing. Like I I could probably walk in there to right now and ask my wife if she'd like to use Microsoft Teams to keep up with family stuff. You know what her response would be? Huh? Like yeah. like this this doesn't make any sense to me. To me, Microsoft's whole consumer facing strategy on this, they've kind of punted on it because they haven't gotten into like the smart home stuff where I think this is Google can integrate this because they have like hardware that's going to be in your home, like where you want to be using this as opposed to like your work phone to switch off your work lists and go into your home. Like to me, I don't cross those modes for me, right? Put something mm -hmm. in my, put something in my home where I'm going to be shopping and, and preparing that or want to talk to mom and dad and have the grandkids on or let me do, you know, power through a PowerPoint and, and all that stuff. So just a weird move. Maybe somebody wants it. I don't know. Uh, next up here in uh, awesome news, uh, ARM may still not have a foothold in the data center, but it does in the supercomputing space with the Fugatu supercomputer coming in first place uh, in the Linpack uh, benchmark tests, uh, that top 500 test. Uh, this is an ARM-based supercomputer offering 2.8 times, or 2.8, yes, times the performance of the former number one Summit supercomputer, Fugatu uses 7.3 million V8A CPU ARM cores in servers across 400 racks with a total memory bandwidth of 163 petabytes per second. Any significance, Tom, in the, the world's top performing supercomputer being now based on ARM? I wouldn't say there's any significance, but you better start paying attention because I have a funny feeling that things are going to be different this time next year um, with regards to what the uh, landscape looks like for Intel processors versus ARM processors. Um, I wonder why. Now, really, here's what this means. This means that people are starting to realize that ARM is very good at doing specific things. Um, you can write software that's better capable of using those cores. I mean, how many, what did it say? Um, um, 7.3 million cores yeah like like i i at this point we're not that th that's as many transistors as there were in several of the x86 processors like the 386 and 486 you're literally using a core as a transistor at this point uh, that that <laughs> gives amazing. me a lot of flexibility that i can do now I've always had this weird fascination with supercomputers because what the hell are they doing? Well, I live in Oklahoma, so they're predicting the weather. Um, they're getting better, but th th this is the thing. This is a cool little thing of saying, hey, we have the fastest computer in the world, and yeah, it happens to be running on ARM. Realistically speaking, it's not going to affect my day-to-day -day life very much, but I think that this means that people are going to kind of finally start sliding over and using ARM in a lot more ways, and I think the data center is probably going to be tracking very closely behind it. Interesting. I see this as more of a threat to NVIDIA because this is not using NVIDIA stuff and all the top, like the top 10 supercomputers were all using those Volta cards uh, and actually like Spark architectures um, going, you know, like some power PC stuff uh, back then just because that scales better for supercomputing. I don't know. Um, so interesting to see kind of uh, NVIDIA being the odd man out uh, in that arrangement. Uh, next up here, interesting story from the Wall Street Journal that Dell is investigating doing 
something with VMware. According to sources, Dell is either looking to possibly spin off the 81% stake it holds in VMware or acquiring the rest of the company. Either or, they just don't want it to stay the way it is. Essentially, it seems like investors aren't seeing a clear distinction between the value of Dell and VMware, resulting in Dell's assets and personal computing and data storage being perceived as undervalued. Buying the remaining stake in VMware would directly put that profitable virtualization giant onto their books, while spinning it off would help ease that $48 billion in debt they're still holding from going public. How do you see this playing out? Does, does either option here make sense to you, Tom? Both options make complete sense. The problem is, is they haven't decided on one. And you know why? They're courting investors. So here's what they're wanting to do. This is like when your buddy takes you out to the bar to have a beer. He goes, yeah, I'm getting tired of my girlfriend. She's just a big pain in the neck and I don't know what I want to do. Well, I was thinking I was either going to dump her or I was going to marry her. (laughs) And what he's doing is he's waiting for you to weigh in with what you think. That way he doesn't have to make the decision. Because here's the thing. If they if they spin off VMware, then VMware is a wholly unsubstantial. They're in a company unto themselves, which I honestly think is the right decision. Um, this has always felt weird to me, and the way that they've been treated forever, even under the EMC Federation thing, never made sense to me. Mm-hmm. VMware would be better as its own company, not shackled to Dell and everything else. And yeah, I I, I know that I said that considering there's a Dell there's a Dell event this week, but this is about VMware. VMware's best path forward is to get free of anybody that can tell them what to do that being said that 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 the investors are not happy about that because almost all of the value that they've derived derived from this whole thing comes from vmware i mean hell they made them issue a vmware tracking stock because they believe that the intrinsic value of vmware is what's making this dell emc merger more valuable now the flip side of this if they completely buy out vmware if they if they buy the rest of the company and they disappear into the ether because now all of that technology kind of, you know, gets subsumed under the Dell, the big Dell EMC golf umbrella and the distinctiveness of the brand gets diluted. The investors are probably going to flip out because now you can't point to that piece and say, this is where the value is. Mm-hmm. So I think what's going to happen is, is the investors are going to signal very strongly what they think Dell should do. And then Dell's going to do whatever the hell they want to do anyway, and the stock's going to go down no matter what. It's interesting. I saw Keith Townsend and a couple other people online kind of speculating if VMware would have the value, or essentially the the financial leverage to not then get acquired eventually by either someone like Microsoft, IBM, or Cisco. You know, those are the big three names that were put out there. Um, that would be another interesting side effect. I think in that order, it would be you know, uh, like that seems like totally in vain with what either Microsoft or IBM were doing. I'd be really surprised if it was Cisco, but they're, you know, all the services all the time now. So, so I, here, here's, here's my prediction for that. Let's assume that VMware finally does the right thing. They break up for good. They move out and they go off to do their own thing. Great. Um, Cisco won't buy them. Uh, Greg Farrow had a really great analysis on this week's episode of uh, Network Break. Uh, Cisco doesn't buy companies that are like PE is way high mm-hmm. and they buy them because they want to make 10x the money that they paid for them. Honestly, I'm gonna I'm not gonna lie. There's not 500 billion dollars worth of value to be getting gotten out of VMware over the next 20 years. Sorry, sure. um, IBM can't afford them. I mean, IBM bit off way more than they can chew with the Red Hat acquisition, and they're still trying to to eat that alive. And honestly, I still believe that Red Hat's going to end up taking over that company. Um, So Microsoft, does Microsoft want to pony up the cash to buy something 
that effectively replicates what they're doing in the cloud? I don't know that that's the answer. I honestly think that VMware would be able to stand on its own as a company that is too big to eat and not not appetizing to the predators that are big enough to eat it. Mm-hmm. It, it certainly will be, again, uh, like you said, Tom, uh, Dell's making up their mind here. We will see if this, if anything comes of this. Um, it, it does seem, given this report, that things will not stay the, as they are. But again, it's it's a it's a anonymous report from sources. The Wall Street Journal Trust. They're a reliable publication. I have no doubt that those sources are accurate. Uh, but no decision has been made yet. Uh, one thing that has a uh, decision been made on is to introduce a bill in the U.S. Senate. Uh, Senator Lindsey Graham introduced the Lawful Access to Encrypted Data Act. Sounds great to me, which calls for an end to warrant proof encryption. The bill does not explicitly mandate the creation of encryption backdoors, but would require tech companies to help investigators access encrypted data if that assistance would help carry out a warrant. There is an appeals process in the law f- uh, for uh, cases that uh, tech companies maybe don't think is appropriate or, or they're unable to do so. And the attorney general cannot give specific steps on how companies must comply with this law, a.k.a. he can't come out and say you have to make a backdoor. It also gives the AG authorization to create a prize for someone who can develop a way to access encrypted data while protecting privacy and security. Uh, and I love in the CNET piece I was reading on this, they had this great aside that says, security experts have long noted that this is an impossible request. <laughs> so Tom, this is just a bill. It's just a humble bill. It's sitting on the steps. They sing in a song, not a law. Um, it doesn't seem like maybe there is bipartisan support for this. Uh, but this is now, I think, the third major uh, piece of encryption-related legislation we've seen over the past couple of years now. Uh, you know, what what is something like this going to eventually get the support it needs? You know, they, they, that's the same issue that Zoom's having, right? The government can come out and say, we want to, you know, use this so that we're not protecting, you know, child predators and, you know, uh, human trafficking and, and all this this truly, truly horrible stuff that no one would in any way support and it's a very powerful bargaining chip kill it kill this bill with fire and acid and whatever else you need to do this is the dumbest idea that i've seen well this month here's the thing and you you brought it up sorry soapbox is coming out um this is a problem for people who can't do real investigative work i'm sorry text messages did not completely obviate your ability to conduct an investigation. End-to-end encryption does not destroy any other kind of evidence. The fact that I can lock my phone with my fingerprint or my face does not preclude you from being able to do every other thing that you're capable of doing to put together a case. Now, what it does remove is the smoking gun of, hey, let's go do this crime. Hey, I agree. Let's go do this crime. It means you actually have to put a little bit more thought into it. Apple has proven time and again that they are on the side of people who are side of users and fully forming in the privacy aspect of things. And how did they do that? Because they basically said, we're going to make it so nobody can read your messages. We're out. We have completely destroyed the ability for us to backdoor these things. And they did it on a very specific, for a very specific reason. So that a bill like this cannot come in and, and the attorney general can go to Apple and go, you have to unlock this phone. Because Apple can then go, no, no, we can't. We, we literally have no capability to do this. We're sorry that your dad's phone is permanently locked because he died and you wanted to see what his text messages were and he didn't tell you his passcode. That sucks, but we have to do this so that the government cannot read your text messages without your approval and collect information. And if it looks like you might be committing a crime, they can file a warrant and have you arrested. 
I mean, this is literally how this has to work. I get it. People are upset because, you know, if we if we could just read those text messages, then we could stop so much crime. That sounds an awful lot to me like, well, you know, if you're not guilty, you don't have anything to hide. And we've been using that excuse for a lot of dumb, very fascist things that we've been doing for the last 20 years that need to stop. So to the people in the Senate who have proposed this bill that looks a whole lot like, you know, we don't have a technical way to make this happen. This is all on the tech providers. And we're going to provide a legislative means for us to put pressure on them to make it happen. And oh, by the way, if they can't make it happen, we're going to pay people to break into things. Get your head out of your rear end. Do a little work on what you're trying to do and figure out why this is a horrible idea. And if you don't think it's a horrible idea, give me the passcode to your phone right now. Let me read it and we'll see if you're guilty of anything. The other thing that always gets me with these discussions is this idea that like encryption is proprietary, right? That like, oh, this is just Apple doing this. It's math. It's it's not even like it's yeah. open source. It literally is just like, we're going to multiply some prime numbers and we're going to make some keys. And turns out, it, you know, maybe, maybe this will make it for individual actors, right? If you don't have this encryption, maybe that makes it easier to catch individual actors or, or get evidence on individual actors. However, if, if you know, one of the other things that they always tout with these is going after terrorist organizations. If you're, if, if you know that this bill is out there, you're just going to hire a developer and you're going to say, Hey, take this encryption, make me a messaging app. I'm going to sideload it on Android. And turns out we are in the exact same situation. Well, not only that, but honestly, if if I know that you can backdoor AES, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to use a elliptical curve. I'm going to use quantum proof encryption. If you really want to break encryption, like in the next five years, you pour a billion dollars into quantum computing research. Because as soon as it obviates RSA, encryption is gone. We don't have to worry about that anymore because anything is breakable at that point. But that's the thing. They don't want to put the money in to do the research to get around these problems. They want to legislate the behavior of the vendors who have been pushing back against them for so many years. And here's the thing, guys. Sorry, I don't know how to explain this in terms that people who run our government can understand. Creating a U.S. law that says that people have to provide backdoors to get into the encryption to prosecute foreign nationals who are sending text messages doesn't work unless you can go find a way to arrest a foreign national. Truly, we will see. I uh, again, it based on all the tea leaves we have seen, doesn't look like this bill is necessarily going anywhere. But you can see, uh, much like we have seen with net neutrality, we're seeing the attempt to uh, uh, sweeten the language a little bit. You know, this isn't saying backdoors; it's saying, well, you just have to work. You know, you have to work. We have a warrant. You know, we you have to you know, and working. You know, and 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 to Apple and and all the other tech companies' credit. They do work with law enforcement. They just don't build them tools to break into the secure enclave or break encryption and stuff like that. And and that's what this uh, law would theoretically change is put a legal onus on them to actually build new products to break the security that they're already breaking, which I think is is truly uh, uh, the problematic uh, the problematic part of it. Um, yeah. So that just about brings us to the end of the Gestalt IT Rundown. Went a little long today, but I think a very, very good conversation. Tom, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate um, uh, you getting up on that soapbox uh, for that last segment there. Uh, what? Uh, where can people find more of your great stuff if they are so inclined? I'm going to need to take a breath. That soapbox was high enough that I may be a little dizzy. That was a um, here's the best. 
Yeah, exactly. Here's the best place to find me. Go to gestaltit.com. Uh, I've been publishing a lot of articles and a lot of other stuff. In fact, I have another episode of Conversations coming out tomorrow on edge computing. Uh, you're not going to want to miss that. Um, I'm thinking I already know the uh, the topic for my next episode, though. So <laughs> stay tuned for that one. Um, I'm going to have to get a bigger soapbox. But uh, there's been a lot of great articles that are coming out. And also, don't forget to go over to techfieldday.com and uh, do a little digging because you may find some new stuff popping up on the website very shortly. Uh, there might be some new events in the works later this year. Very exciting. And remember to tune in for uh, Tech Field Day presents Dell Technologies Power Up the Portfolio uh, going on tomorrow and Friday as well. You can also uh, check out uh, youtube.com slash gestaltit videos. If you're not already watching that there, subscribe there. We have all sorts of great stuff uh, going on every single week. Aside from conversations, we have uh, Checksum. We have this video series. We have all sorts of other great stuff as well. That just about brings us, though, to the end of the Gestalt IT Rundown. Thank you so much for watching. We'll be back next Wednesday at 1230 p.m. Eastern Time talking about the IT News of the Week. Until then, for myself, for Tom Hollingsworth, for all of us here at the Gestalt IT family, here's wishing you and yours to have a super sparkly day. <laughs>